You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. When you flip on your light switch at home, do you ever think about where that electricity came from? Here in Oregon, your electricity could be coming from wind power, solar arrays, hydropower facilities, natural gas, coal, or other resources. Energy facilities like wind farms and power plants are spread out among our communities, producing energy to keep our state running. The birth of an energy facility, and its lifespan, is dependent on a governor-appointed body called the Energy Facility Siding Council. Their complex work is supported by staff here at the Oregon Department of Energy. I'm joined today by our Siding Division Administrator, Todd Cornett, who's going to walk us through the basics of siding facilities in Oregon. Uh, thanks for joining me, Todd. Let's get started with a basic Siding 101. How does an energy facility get started in Oregon? So it first starts with the statutory definition of an energy facility. So the, you know, the legislature has defined what facilities come to the Energy Facility Siting Council, or FSEC. So that is the kind of the point where jurisdiction comes to the state. And these are facilities that are either important to the energy sector of the state or the region, or they're so significant that they could have very large impacts, and so that they need to be reviewed at a state level versus a local jurisdictional level. Can you describe a little bit uh, the difference between when it would be an FSEC project and when it would be something more local? Sure. Is it the size or what kind of energy it is? It varies, and that's why we have kind of 11 distinct types of facilities that come to FSEC, and they all have different jurisdictional thresholds. Some of them are megawatt, um, how much power they produce, some are our size, some are any type of that facility, such as a nuclear facility. Anything related to nuclear would come to FSEC automatically. It wouldn't have a local jurisdictional option. So it really depends upon the type of facility. For example, for a solar facility, it's based upon the idea that <clears throat> these will be in the uh, farmland. And so it's based on acreage uh, because these are footprint impacts. Um, and so for facilities that are on high value or good farming land, the threshold is 100 acres. Anything that's more than 100 acres comes to FSEC. Anything less than that on those types of soils goes to the local jurisdiction, probably the county. For larger ones, so if the facility, the solar facility is on non, largely non-farmable land, very low-quality farmland, then it's a 320-acre threshold. So the local government would have the ability to review projects up to 320 acres, and then FSEC would review it over 320. If it's on low-quality land? It's on low-quality land. Who decides what quality the land is? The land use system in Oregon has a very long history and well-defined definitions of what qualifies as high-value versus low-value farmland. And so we rely upon that. We didn't create that. That that already exists. So for the example you just uh, described with solar, have we, has FSEC had any large solar facilities that they've been reviewing? Yeah, we have one that has come into um, FSEC. It is the full site boundary. Site boundary is really kind of the larger potential impact area, not necessarily the entire facility. The, the entire site boundary for one facility that we have is 900 acres. The actual solar farm, uh, solar panels, will be in the range of about 450 acres. So that one definitely uh, exceeded that threshold and is coming to us. And what facility is that? That's the Boardman Solar Energy Project, which is located about 10 miles west of Boardman, Oregon, 
just immediately south of Interstate 84. All right, so you have a project in front of you that needs to go to FSEC. How does that get started? Yeah, typically the potential applicant will come in and do a pre-application meeting with us. Um, you know, some have had multiple projects with us in the past, and so they have good experience. Some are brand new, and so they're just kind of getting an idea of how the state process works. So they, the developer will typically hire some local assistance, whether that's legal assistance or kind of environmental review assistance. So we will meet with probably that entire project team um, in advance and have a conversation about the location, the uh, type of facility, anything that we're thinking of. And they typically are interested in you know, the time it's going to take, the cost that it's going to be for um, our review. And so we usually have that initial conversation. At that point, they've usually already done a fair amount of work, and they know that they're likely to come into us. But officially, what happens is that they come in um, when they're ready to go with what's called a notice of intent. And this is a document that has requirements about what they submit, but it's generally a description of what they want to do and where they want to do it. It's not an application. It's really much more generalized now. They have to do some kind of research and and surveys and studies, but it gives the department, it gives the state agencies, local governments, tribal governments who help us in our review, and the public an opportunity to do an initial evaluation of the potential project. And that gives, uh, does a couple of things. One, it allows anybody to express any issues or concerns that they have, which then is helpful for the developer early on because they can then either decide to uh, avoid those issues or they understand what the potential impacts are and and what kind of mitigation they may have to be dealing with. Um, The other thing it does is for the department, we take that information, we take the comments we receive, because there's a comment period associated with that, um, and that uh, allows us to establish what's called the project order, and that's really just a document that describes what are the particular standards associated with that particular project, because each project is different. Now, we have a set standards in our in our rules, but we also incorporate, again, local governments, state agencies, tribal governments, and so they may have different permits, they may have different requirements associated with that particular location. So the project order is really what gives the the blueprint of what the applicant is going to have to meet in terms of all the standards associated with that project. So when you say that your team helps them identify any potential impacts for the project and what mitigations they may have to take, what kind of impact might you be talking about? Well, again, it really varies based upon the location. We could be in an industrial area, in an urban setting. We could be in a largely undisturbed natural resource area, you know, which just has natural habitat. Uh, We could be in a wheat field. Uh, So it really varies. There could be visual impacts. There could be natural resource impacts to different types of habitat, uh, Washington ground squirrel or certain other avian species. So there's a lot of different types of impacts that have to be done. And the earlier that the developer or applicant uh, understands what those are, the better than they can do the research to submit a good application to help show that they meet the standards. All right, so you have a developer who has filed their notice of intent. They want to create this project, and so then it goes through this Energy Facility Siting Council, or FSEC, review. Can you tell me a little bit about FSEC? Who is FSEC? What is that body? Yeah, FSEC is a governor-appointed, Senate-confirmed body. They are seven members. They are 
not employees of the state, they're volunteers, but they are the decision makers. They make decisions on all of our applications, all of the amendment requests, all of the rulemakings. So, you know, we as the Department of Energy are staffed to them. You know, we do the bulk of the day-to-day work and, you know, we put together the documentation and make recommendations. But ultimately, they have to review that. They review all the materials from the applicant. They look at all the comments. They see what the staff is recommending. But the ultimate decision is theirs. That's quite a big job. Can you describe who's on that council? What kind of people are interested in this kind of giant volunteer position? It is a big job. And I think, you know, I think there are a lot of boards and commissions. And I'm certainly not familiar with all of them. But I think this is probably at the high end of kind of demand on volunteers for uh, boards and commissions for state agencies. We ask a lot of them. We have meetings potentially every month. Um, This last year, or 2017, we will have had 11 meetings. That's a lot. These are all over the state because we have all of our meetings occur in the locations of usually what's the major item on the agenda. So that puts us in eastern Oregon a lot, kind of in the Boardman area, but, you know, we will also go to Klamath Falls or the South Oregon coast. So we try to be exactly where the facilities are so people can participate. So the puts a lot of burden on the council to go with us, um, show up and, and participate and be ready to, to evaluate the information. But the council members themselves, there's really, there's, there's no geographic representation that's required. There's no professional representation that's required by um, statute. But typically that's both of those things are something that the, the governor and the department tries to do. We want to make sure that we have a good representation of the state of Oregon and a good, broad, kind of professional representation um, with some really understanding or interest in energy. Uh, we want to get people who have some background in that, but it's certainly not a requirement. So right now, you know, we have council members from Central Oregon, from the I-5 corridor, from Eastern Oregon. We have a pretty good geographic distribution, and the professional backgrounds are also. We have a couple who have background in the energy sector. We have some land use planners. Uh, we have a retired circuit court judge. Uh, we have a city mayor. We, we have a good kind of think representation, broad geographic and professional representation. How long do do members usually stay on the council? Because you, I mean, you're describing it's a huge job. There's a lot of travel, and it's really complex work. And what they're doing is going to make a huge impact on our state and the people who live here. So, uh, what kind of commitment do do folks on the council usually have? Uh, like other boards and commissions, they have a term limit. They can do up to two four-year terms. So they are appointed and confirmed for their first term, which is four years, they serve that. And um, if it's good fit, if they're interested and the governor is still interested in having them continue on, then they have the option of a second four-year term. But that's the maximum. I mean, technically they they can continue to serve until they're replaced, um, but that usually happens you know, within that time frame of their term limits. How does the team here at the Oregon Department of Energy support FSEC to make sure that they have all the information they need in order to make a decision about a project? So the siting analysts, who are the, we have four siting analysts, and their positions are the ones that do the 
the majority of the work related to applications and amendments. And they have a pretty significant job because, you know, it's not just we receive information, we evaluate it, and we send it to council with a recommendation. There's a lot of work that goes into um, working with the applicant, evaluating the information that's submitted, determining whether it's sufficient, um, that we have enough information to review uh, against the standards. We do a lot of coordination with what are called reviewing agencies, and these are state agencies, local governments, and tribal governments. So um, any state agency or local government that would have had jurisdiction, it gets folded into our process. So their standards effectively become the council standards. Um, That's determined early on, but we work with them significantly throughout the process to make sure that we've identified those standards or if they have permits or if they have policies that need to get included as part of our standards. So we work with them throughout the process to identify that, to get their comments, to make sure that we're evaluating it um, as as they would. Tribal governments are also incredibly important. So early on, um, the Commission, Legislative Commission on Indian Services identifies which of the uh, nine federally recognized tribes in Oregon could be affected by the facility. And so like state agencies and local governments, we provide notice to them throughout the process and seek their input and comments. So we wanna make sure that if there are any tribal codes, or if there are any issues or concerns that they have, um, that those are identified as early as possible and can be evaluated uh, and either avoided or mitigated. And so we work with all of those groups pretty significantly throughout the process. Um, it takes a lot to maintain good working relationships. You know, these agencies, this is not part of their portfolio, and so we do a lot to educate them, to try to give them advance warning. Um, so there's a lot of work one-on-one with these different agencies and, and entities to make sure that they can participate in the way that we need them to participate. The public is also an incredibly important part of our process. So we um, we want to hear from them. We, uh, we know that these projects are big. This is part of the reason why they come to the state is that they are huge, some of the biggest infrastructure projects in the state of Oregon, and they have potential for big impacts on adjacent landowners and, and others. And so we want to make sure that we provide good notification to them, that we hear what they're saying, and if the comments that they submit are can connect to a council standard, because that's our limitation is we can't just... Um, review these questions or comments and because somebody doesn't like it we don't have any authority based on that we only have authority based upon um, whether their comments are related to a standard but if they raise issues um, connected to a standard we absolutely want to hear that and we absolutely want to be able to work with them and the applicant to try to understand that and either avoid or mitigate that to the greatest extent possible. So there's a lot of work that goes in throughout the process. There are multiple steps. There are multiple kind of documents that the applicant submits. There's multiple documents that the count or the staff has to produce. And these are all really, or most of these are um, kind of varying iterations of our recommendation to council. So we have multiple steps where we seek input, we make a recommendation, we get more input, we change that, it's still effectively our recommendation and we seek more input on that. But ultimately when it comes to the council or FSEC, then we give them that information. They've received all of the information submitted by the applicant to date, they've received all the information sent out by the staff to date, Um, and it all culminates really with the final recommendation by staff. And when I say by staff, I mean (laughs) sort of the larger, not just um, the siting analyst that I talked to, but we 
work with Department of Justice. We have a contact council who is almost entirely devoted to FSEC. So we work with them, and almost everything that we send to FSEC is fully vetted by the Department of Justice. Again, taking into consideration all of the um, comments that we've received throughout the process, Ultimately, we have a recommendation that we believe is legally defensible, that the recommendation shows that the applicant has either met or not met the standards, uh, and our recommendation could be either um, to approve the facility or to deny the facility based upon um, whether or not we think the applicant has met the burden of proof they have met all of the standards or not. So then it goes to the council and they evaluate everything and, you know, we do our best. We spend a lot of time on this. We do our best, but ultimately it is their decision and they don't have to, they don't have to agree with staff. And there has been times recently where they've had differences of opinion. They've had split votes um, where some of them agreed with staff and some of them didn't. And they've, there's been others where ultimately they made a slightly different decision than staff recommended, but that's the point. They're an independent body and they have the authority to do that. So really your staff is giving them the lay of the land, doing as much as they can to produce information and a recommendation that's based on the facts. You know, this is what the project is. Here's what people are saying. Here's what the reviewing agencies and the tribes have said. And based on all of that, this is our recommendation. And then the council dives into that and and makes a decision based on that information. That, that's exactly correct. So you've described these projects. They're very long. They're large. They take a lot of time and a lot of work. Where does the funding come from for Oregon Department of Energy staff to complete this work? So the siting division is probably a little more than uh, 10% of the Department of Energy staff. And the majority of our funding comes from applicants and the site certificate holders. Site certificate holder is once a, a project is approved, then they are issued a site certificate. And so that's the term we use, a site certificate holder. And so in terms of um, applications, all of the costs associated with applications are paid by the applicant. For uh, site certificate holders, we have a compliance program. They pay for that compliance program. And so all the costs associated with that on an annual basis are also paid by those site certificate holders. And so, again, the majority of the funding for the siting division comes from applicants and site certificate holders. So early on for an applicant, we determine, uh, or at least we make an estimate of what the costs are going to be associated with that facility, um, and they're obligated to pay those costs throughout. And those costs include all the staff time. So anytime that we are working on that project, they include any of the reviewing agencies, which I discussed, all the tribal governments, state agencies, local governments, anytime that we ask them to review information and that they submit information to us, that is also reimbursable. All of our FSEC uh, meetings, those are prorated based upon the agenda items. And so those applicants or site certificate holders pay for the, the prorated portion of that facility or that, um, that council meeting. So that includes all of the travel costs, all the hotel costs, all the per diem, um, everything associated with that then gets, again, prorated out according to how the agenda is established. So when you talk about the, the siting standards, can you describe a little bit what kind of standards does the state have for energy facilities? Yeah, there are 14 general standards for every facility. As I said, we had 11 distinct facilities, and so we have certain standards that apply to every one of them. Fish and wildlife standard, for example, um, that that's applicable to all facilities. 
But as you might imagine, if you are in an urban area in an industrial zone that's a brownfield, there may not be much natural resource implications associated with that. But if you're in a, you know, an area that is undisturbed, there are going to be a lot more natural resource implications. The effort and the work that the applicant has to do associated with that standard is going to vary based upon the location. It's the same with every other standard. Scenic, uh, we have protected areas. So protected areas are defined areas such as scenic byways and waysides and certain other um, state and federal and local areas that the facility can't even go in with with other with, with some limited exceptions. But even if it's outside of those, we have to evaluate what the impact is on those. So there's a lot of variation. And again, it just depends on that, that facility and the location of that facility. But other standards uh, would be threatened and endangered species, soils. So we want to make sure that the facility doesn't impact soils, particularly, say, on agricultural ground uh, or runoff into waterways. Uh, we also want to make sure that the facility isn't being sited on a geohazard, which then has implications for that facility and, and the safety of people in the future. So there's a whole host of standards that are general and applied to all facilities, but then there are some that are specific to certain facilities. So we have public health and safety for wind. So we want to make sure that people can't um, access wind turbines or get close enough to them that they would could be injured by them. So we evaluate that. We have a need standard for non-generating facilities. And what that means really is linear facilities, pipelines and transmission lines. So for generating facilities, it's the market established whether or not there was uh, a need for that facility. But for linear facilities, pipelines and transmission lines, they actually have to come in and there's a standard for them to show that there's an actual need for that facility. And I think the reason why is because linear facilities have a much larger impact on uh, property owners because typically those have the ability to get uh, eminent domain authority associated with them. So there's a higher burden associated with um, getting those facilities. Well, and I think there's a good example happening right now. There's a large Boardman to Hemingway transmission line that's being proposed. So I think that one has been going on for quite a bit of time. And I think even now we, we expect it to continue for a couple more years. Is that right? Yeah. So the Boardman-Hemingway transmission line is a 500 kV line. And so that's, you know, up, not the biggest, but about the biggest transmission lines you can get. Um, and really it's bulk transmission so that uh, energy can be conveyed across uh, long distances. And this is a 300 mile long project from Boardman, Oregon to Hemingway in Idaho. Um, and yeah, so it crosses five counties in Oregon, 300 miles. It's a long and big project. And even though the width, you know, is going to be, you know, 100 feet, you know, right of way, um, doesn't have a huge right of way, it's going to cross a lot of different habitats, a lot of different property owners, a lot of different types of land uses. And so, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty big deal. And then I think I remember seeing there is a new wind farm proposal coming too that's near Stanfield, Oregon. And so, that's another example where I think when you're talking about these standards, you have to consider if it's on farmland or if it may impact wildlife, which I imagine it would. Birds in the area, I think it's close to the river. Uh, so it, I think you're really describing just how complex this work is and how hard it must be for the FSEC members to to really dive in and figure out whether or not it's the best case for Oregon. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good description. I mean, you know, if you look at you know, solar projects, wind projects, transmission line projects, um, 
or uh, natural gas-powered thermal projects, and then you start looking at the different areas, whether it's the Oregon coast or southern Oregon or southeast Oregon or north central Oregon. So the different types of facilities in the different types of locations, there's a lot of variation. We, if you look at a map of the history of the facilities that have come to FSEC, we are all over the state. Um, and so that there's a lot of complexity in terms of the types of areas that we work in and, again, the types of facilities that we're reviewing. Well, and it's also trying to find a, a balance in that we, we need electricity, we need energy. Uh, and here in Oregon, we really value renewable energy. But it's not so simple just to say, we love renewable energy, therefore let's build this wind farm. There are still these considerations that you have to take into account in how it's going to affect people who live near it. Yeah, and I think that's a good, really good point uh, as well, just because that's exactly what we're here for. You know, we're not here to approve these facilities. We're not here to deny these facilities. We're here to make sure that anything that ultimately gets recommended to the council for if, if there's a recommendation for approval, that the applicant has met the burden of proof um, of meeting all of the standards associated with that. So that's what the standards are for, is to mitigate the impacts associated with these facilities um, and so we spend a lot of time doing that. But ultimately, it is, imp- again, why the, some of these facilities come to FSEC is because they are important and they are needed for the state and regional energy sector. Well, I think that gives us a really good uh, basic understanding of energy facility siting in Oregon. And maybe in a future episode, we can get together and talk about a particular project or two. Yeah, I think that would be great. We have uh, a couple of, of really significant projects going on right now. And, I think uh, it will be helpful to kind of uh, walk through uh, one particular facility to give people an understanding uh, of how these general concepts that we talked about actually get played out um, on a particular project. There you have it, Oregon. Siting an energy facility in our state is complicated, but the Energy Facility Siting Council and the Oregon Department of Energy are up to the task. Interested in learning more? We want your voice heard in the siting process. Visit our blog for some helpful links, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Learn more about our work at oregon.gov energy. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com slash oregonenergy. Subscribe to Grounded on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or tune in. Until next time, thanks for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.